Welcome back everybody to the podcast. Today we are diving into the mind of Grant Wilson. Grant Wilson is the UK brand director for IWC Watches. Now, for those of you that don't know what IWC is, they're a luxury watch brand that is worldwide. They're world-renowned. They're owned by the Richemont Group, which was recently valued at $165 billion, and IWC's annual revenue in 2021 was $600 million. Today, we're going to be talking about how Grant became the IWC brand director, as well as some intricacies and also some secrets of the luxury watch industry. My name is Harrison Brown, and if you're watching this, I hope it helps. Grant. So when I was doing my research on you, and I've had the pleasure of working with you for a couple of years, yeah. um, you actually used to work at Rolls-Royce. And That's it's funny it. how those, those luxury industries kind of <laughs> intertwine. So talk me through your career. Where did it start for you? Well, straight out of uni, I went to, uh, I worked at BMW UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for a couple of years. And while I was at BMW, BMW had acquired Rolls-Royce. So um, VW had acquired Bentley and BMW had acquired um, Rolls-Royce. And the way that that contract all worked in that acquisition process was that um, VW would um, take on Bentley and the manufacturing facility and the people and the cars and the engines, etc. Actually, engines were BMW. And so um, for BMW, they had to find a new manufacturing facility, a new workforce, a new dealer network. They had to build a new car from scratch. They had to design a new car from scratch. And so really, it was a completely clean canvas. And while that was happening, there was opportunities to come and work at Rolls-Royce. If you're part of the BMW group, you can come and work at Rolls-Royce. And I found that, you know, I loved being at BMW. It gave me a good, a good grounding, but mm-hmm. the opportunity to be, you know, and at the beginning, nobody knew if it was going to work. Mm-hmm. There was this, this was a, a vanity project for the group and, uh, you know, a couple of years and a lot of people saying, don't do it. You know, it's a bad move. But uh, for me, I, 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 I felt there was great opportunity to to do something at quite a low level that could be quite meaningful in that setup, mm. and I found that really exciting. The downside of working for the group, the BMW group, was, you know, when I started, you kind of had your job. It was a nine to five job. You were a specialist in that area. You couldn't deviate from that area, and it was a great place to kind of get the the basics. But I felt quite frustrated in that process and, and making the transition over to Rolls-Royce, you know, you had to be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. You had to, you had to set up the dealer network. You had to you worry about logistics of getting the cars out. We were working when the manufacturing facility wasn't even completely finished. You were um, dealing with the end clients. You were dealing with wholesale partners. You were directly feeding back to the CEO and the board of directors. And it was a dream job for me because at the time, you know, it was just, so many pegs down in terms of having any access to anybody super senior at BMW is just impossible. So for me, it was it was great being kind of inverted commas a, a, a big fish in a in a small pond, if you like. Whereas at BMW, it's the complete complete opposite. I love that. And you and you had so you always had a luxury a, a car love, let's say. Um, did, yeah. And I know that, and I'll ask you about your car later. <laughs> uh, so you always had a, a love for luxury cars. So two years in BMW, in BMW yeah. and then. 16 years in Rolls-Royce? Yeah, 16 years at Rolls-Royce in Goodwood. And where did you start and where did you finish your kind of trajectory through Rolls-Royce? Yeah, so um, it was a sales coordinator role. 
back in the early turn of the, the turn of the millennium. Um, and at the time they gave me the West Coast of America and Asia Pacific. And if you just think about that from a time zone perspective, <laughs> it was ridiculous. I was commuting, I was living in Chiswick at the time and I was commuting an hour and a half to get into into Goodwood from, from Central, oh well, from West London. And uh, and then I had to look after Asia Pacific, so really early in the morning. And then West Coast of America was really late in the afternoon. <laughs> Sleep during so the day. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. But that luckily that that's that didn't that didn't uh, stay like that for too long because it was just impossible to look after both the both the partners there. Um, so I did loads of sales roles, and then in 2010 I was moved to become a general manager for for Europe. At the time, Europe was split into three sections. It was the UK, which I never looked after, the UK, and then uh, Europe South and Europe North. And mm. during that period of time, I looked after both both regions. But that was great because you get to all the sunny places like uh, Marbella and Monaco and, and up. the South of France. It was great, <laughs> except I'd be the only person, to, you know, wearing a suit and everybody else, would be, <laughs> you know, on the, uh, you know, in their in their um, flip flops and shorts. And it was great because you always fly on EasyJet, but you get picked up at a Rolls Royce. So that was a great way to bring you back down. You get dropped off by the dealer in a Rolls Royce to get on yeah. your EasyJet flight. <laughs> so, Take you up to drop you again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They always made sure that you, uh, you know, you never got ahead of yourself. Um, and that was that was great. But then you also got to play a crazy place like Moscow. Some of my craziest stories and times were were supporting the the dealer in Moscow. That was that was a. Uh, and St. Petersburg as well. It was a beautiful place at the time. Yeah. And what is your favourite Rolls Royce? Have you had to pick? It would be a Phantom Coupe Aviator Edition. So no, the fact that IWC has a close link to aviation, it was mm. a really beautiful... Um, the Phantom Coupe was probably the, the connoisseur's car. We did the least of them. I think there's probably only 250 of them in existence. And then the in Aviator... The yeah, I think so. And then in the... Oh, don't quote me on that. But uh, the, yeah. the Aviator was a really super small volume edition, but had this beautiful tunnel finisher, mm. really beautiful pieces of machinery putting in. It was a really elegant execution and it's quite a selfish purchase because you know, it's not a car that you can really take a whole family with you. Mm. It just, I love the, the look and the lines for me. That was, that was a really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful car. Yeah, and there's so many similarities in the, the luxury industry between yeah. cars and watches because you don't need a really expensive car just like you don't need a really expensive watch. Sure. So quite a lot of the time they're a very sentimental purchase and you need yeah. a lot of like, you know, marketing and emotion behind that. Yeah. Do you think that's the biggest attraction that, you know, the similarities between cars, because cars and watches go hand in hand. Yeah. Do you think that's the, the kind of similarity there? Yeah, I think that takes me back to my love for watches came from being in the luxury car business because, you know, you'd go to the south of France or you'd go to wherever it was where in the one consistency was the, the, the biggest commodity for our clients was, was time. Mm -hmm. And the one thing they all had in common was um, watches. Yeah. You know, there was a real passion for watches. So I, I kind of... It, switched me on to it and I was at the beginning it was I need to understand that because you know you want to engage in conversations you want to when you go out for a dinner you can't just talk about cars all night long mm. or, although inevitably we probably we did. Yeah, <laughs> so you, you kind of wanted to I've said it before jack of all trades but master of none you had to know a little bit about a lot and be able to 
eloquently try to, to get some of the some of the key points. So it's like at the beginning, watches were I need to understand it so I can talk about it, I can converse in conversation. And then once you go down that rabbit hole, you know, you, you don't you come start back digging. out. Yeah, exactly. And, and I love watches. And at that point, I was really hooked. And, and why? So you met, you were working at Rolls-Royce. You've, you've got this amazing career with Rolls-Royce. And then you start looking into watches. So what attracted you to IWC? Because there's so many watch brands out yeah. there. What was it about IWC? Well, to be honest, I wasn't looking. I was, mm. I was, um, it was the press communications director. It was, I, I couldn't see... To be really honest, I couldn't see where my next role was at Rolls Royce, so I kind of hit a bit of a plateau well, in terms of like because it was quite small. Other than going to back into the BMW Group and doing a job perhaps in Munich or something, I just didn't. It just it wasn't. I loved my time there, but I couldn't. I couldn't see myself doing that. Mm. And so the press communication director approached me and said, "Look, you know this. Not that we want you to leave, but this job's come up. You, should, you know, we know you love watches. You should have a look at it." So I just kind of at the beginning, I just sent my CV off. I didn't think anything of it. And then they telephoned interview me and uh, got through to the next stage. And I thought, okay, I'll take this a bit more seriously. And it turned into like a mammoth job. I don't think they were at all convinced that, <laughs> that, they, that they wanted me. It took a while. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think if you ask anybody that knows me, I'm quite a tenacious person. Mm. And I, I thought, well, one thing that I will make sure that nobody else will, will do is put as much effort into w wanting this job as much as... So I went overboard, you know, I started doing, they didn't ask me to do any of that, but I started doing mystery shops. I, I wanted to have a base understanding of where, you know, where where IWC was in the UK, what made good service. I went to the boutique in New Bond Street. I went to a, an authorised dealer. But this is all before you in place. All before, all before I did, just part of, like, I was determined to get the job. Mm -hmm. And you know when you've got, you know, you've got the bit between your teeth, you're yeah. determined to get it. And I yeah. thought, well, nobody's, Nobody's going to at least put more energy into this than me. Mm. There may be smarter people. There may be people that could actually do the job better than me. But I was determined that nobody would, nobody would do it. Mm. Um, nobody would put as much energy in. So I ended up doing like three mystery shops. I did like a grey market dealer. I did an authorised dealer. And I went to the boutique. And I did my assessment of that. And then I, I said what I would do in my first 90 days. I said how I would activate our sponsorships more. And then I went to professional printers and they printed it all up for me. So, I mean, I went OTT, oh, like, it was ridiculous. I went yeah. OTT and um, spent every every uh, waking hour working on this, but it was really protracted. I mean, I probably shouldn't say that, but it was, uh, it was like four interviews. It was multiple trips to Schaffhausen. And I think it was because, and and credit to the, to the, to the team, or thankfully for me, is it's not it's quite difficult to come into the industry at that level without you know working for a, a watch brand yeah. or at least that was my perception so you went straight into the I, uk director role i went straight into the uk director role. i hadn't done like a sales director role i hadn't done like a marketing role i hadn't worked my way through the watch industry and i i think although i'm i'm, I'm not i'm not entirely sure i think what chris was looking for is just a different perspective you know a different look at how the business could be could be run and how it could be presented. And um, obviously there's close links with automotive and IWC. We're really closely connected with things like Formula One and we have a really strong relationship at Goodwood. So there was a lot of synergies that I felt really emotionally connected to. And I had a real passion for the brand as well. You know, it was, it's, it's all, IWC is always known as the the engineering brand and, and being someone that was interested in engineering, I found, you know, a kinship there. 
Yeah, I, I think I can see that. I think I can see the different perspective that maybe Chris and the IWC team were looking for yeah. within you. Yeah. And I think that the, the fact that you put so much effort into this job that you didn't yet have, yeah. it says a lot about your, your personality. Um, yeah, but I remember my interview with Chris and it didn't at all go to how I had it in my head. Oh, it never does. It never no, does. No, but I had, I had ever, as I said, I'd done all these presentations and with, with Mark, who's the chief commercial officer, you know, it was quite structured and he wanted to understand what I knew about the network and how I would go about it. And it was all quite structured. Mm. And Mark said, you know, we're going to need to have you some, you know, Chris wants to, to have some time with you. And Chris had noticed, either on my LinkedIn profile, some, somehow he'd noticed that I'd study at Bournemouth University. And Chris did a deep dive on you. And then. Chris was at Bournemouth University. He was, I think, a year. There was like a year's difference. So, and I didn't know him at all at Bournemouth Uni. Mm. So when I sat down, it was straight into Bournemouth University talk. You know, you know, did were you at the fire station? You know, talking about different, which was the student union, and I, it was just caught me by surprise because yeah. I was expecting him to ask me questions about my background, about watches, and he just wanted to have a chat. And I came out of it and I was like, I didn't get any of the points that I wanted to get across. <laughs> I have no idea. And Mark yeah. said, you know, how did it go? Because I think Mark at that point was quite invested in me as well. And he was like, how did it go? I was like, not sure. We just <laughs> talked about like stuff over a table, <laughs> like you would about, you know, someone that was at the same university and some of the, some of the stories that we picked up there, but yeah. it was great. And you know, it was, he put me at ease instantly. And um, that, that's how it should be. Though. It's yeah. a bit like today. I think that a lot of people and, and we've had people walk into a room before with, when there's cameras and there's lights and, and they kind of are deer in headlights and they're not themselves. Yeah. But then you have a chat with them and you ask them how the kids are and you ask yeah. them, and all of a sudden the real personality comes yeah, out. Yeah, comes out, yeah. I, I think that kind of new perspective really shone through to me with IWC's marketing. Yeah. And and, and I've been following the brand for a while because I've been in the industry. But, but over the last three years in particular, yeah. I think you and the team have had a huge impact on the marketing of the watch industry because it is an old-fashioned-ish industry. Yeah, it is. And, um, and I think the, the, the one that was most prevalent to me was the IWC container. Yeah. Talk to me about that. How was that conceptualized? Do you get a budget from IWC and then you pitch it to the board? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, kind of. So every year we do our business plans. Mm. and it's quite a big thing it's 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 a it's a big chunk of work but it's you know I remember when I first did it I was I was really intimidated by the whole process and you know I also felt there was so much time being put into this that I felt I was I was needed elsewhere when I first started the whole business plans but it's such a useful investment of time because it allows you to do a deep dive into your business understand where the business is today where the business is going to be and where you want to grow the business what mechanisms you got within your ability to kind of grow the business as well. And um, so within the business plan template, we created obviously our marketing plan. Um, and I remember that year when we presented it, it was the, the original concept, I think that we presented was these kind of Formula One trucks that turn mm. up to the, the, you know, whichever Formula One race they're going to and they open up into a great big huge um, experience center with you know pop-ups here or there and everywhere. So in our head it was originally like a Formula One truck mm. and I think when we pitched it I think Chris liked the the idea of it but you know I think he's he saw the the, the con shipping containers working really well because they're quite rugged they're quite um, you know just I just felt he could see a consistency you could take 
multiple shipping containers and then pop them in different key cities. So I, you know, I felt like we were part of that process. Yeah. Um, but Chris is such a creative person. You know, I, I, I couldn't see a, a shipping container turning into what we ended up delivering. And that's down to Chris and, and the HQ team as well. But it was, it was great for us because literally we could pop it up and put it into a, a key city like Edinburgh or mm. like in the centre of Manchester or in Covent Garden in London. And it gave us our ability to kind of do um, brand awareness that hadn't really been done before in a conventional sense. You know, the people that had no clue about the brands could come and see the see the have product, an have an experience, talk to someone that was passionate about watches and showcase them. And we had everybody coming into that container, you know, people that had no clue about watches at all. Um, to people that were massive watch enthusiasts but hadn't ever felt comfortable in, which which hopefully we're addressing, you know, didn't feel comfortable in going into a boutique environment or going mm. into a into a, an authorised dealer. You know, so I, I think it, it kind of pulled down the curtain on that and just gave people an opportunity to get, you know, with the product that it was, you know, they could touch and they could feel it. They could feel the tact. Obviously, we had a big yeah. amount Some of security. security. <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of a security headache when we came up with the concept. But mm. um, no, but I, I love that. And I loved that whole process of doing something that hadn't been done before. You know, it was a bit of a test. It was, I, I guess we were the kind of the guinea pigs, mm. but it was it was great in terms of us being able to to really get some traction on that brand awareness in the UK. And that was really part of the, the, the start of this big big impulse, this big push on, on brand awareness. And I think that that comes down to the, the kind of experiential luxury market. A luxury product, as I said before, anyone can buy a watch yeah and anyone can buy a car yeah because it goes a to b or watch tells time but yeah. that experience yeah. is what makes you buy into the brand yeah and what it, what the genius thing about that was as well as marketing because you were putting a you know a g-wagon outside yeah. and uh, and everything it was amazing and you had this amazing experience you were marketing but you were also giving that experience in a really fun way yeah. and a really unique way and what i've struggled with within um Chisholm Hunter when Drew and I are doing the YouTube and the social media, all that kind of stuff, is kind of attributing sales to views yeah. or sales to what we're doing. Yeah. A lot the of return we, on investment. Exactly, yeah. the ROI. So yeah. what a lot of what we do is kind of, pros, you could call it prospecting. Yeah. We're putting something out, it might not work, but yeah. if it does, say it gets 10,000 views, 20,000 views, 30,000 views, it's very hard to correlate that with sales. Yeah. Because they will bounce away from the video, but in a year's time, they might yeah. bounce back. Sure. How did you, with the IWC Roadshow, did you see a correlation between each stage and the sales? Did they follow suit? I, I think, know you can't I think, No, no, but, but I think the, the priority, which may sound counterintuitive, but the priority wasn't about how many watches we could sell from that pop-up exhibition. It was, it was a brand awareness exercise, first and mm -hmm. foremost. It was the ability for people to engage in the product, have conversations, understand... You know, there was a there's part of if you remember the first container we did, there's a there's like a, a, a storytelling part of the of the shipping container where you could find out about F. A. Jones and yeah. and Schaffhausen and you know our affinity and our relationship with aviation watches and military watches, as well as things like um, the I've, I I think I W C is known as the the engineering brand. We're not really an artisan brand, you know, mm -hmm. like some of the some of the beautiful watch maisons that you see in the the French side of Switzerland, where, where, you know, close to the German border, so we're very kind of utilitarian, kind of engineering, and you see that 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 kind of translates into the product. 
And so for people to see the functionality, the form follows function elements to the watch, I think um, I think it allowed us to create our, uh, you know, for those that weren't so familiar with the brand or so familiar with with luxury watches, they could it set us aside yep. and, and show how IWC was different. And for us, that was the, the m- number one priority was, was, was um, you know, watches are becoming more popular, mm. you know, um, and if you say to the average Joe on the street, name me a watch brand, probably say one or two brands that, yeah. you know, that most people would say. And, and that's kind of like an ambition for, a personal ambition for myself is for, for us to be that known brand, but without deviating from, you know, who we are, you know, not trying to dilute the brand image in any way. We know, we know we're great at making military aviation, pilots, watches, chronographs, engineering case materials. We have a rich provenance of, 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 of history, you know, our, our, our founder was an American that came over and set up and, and, and all of those really rich stories we, we, we still are true to, but we try to, to, to kind of deliver it or showcase it in a less conventional way. Yeah, and that, that, that's the difference between IWC and other brands within the watch industry as a whole, as I see, because they can be quite old fashioned, some of yeah. them. And I think that that's beginning to change now, but it's slower than fashion and the rest of it. And I think luxury in general normally moves slower because people have a sentimental attachment to it instead of it just being style. Yeah. So if you look at fashion, it changes every three months yeah. and people think that's cool or bad. Yeah. Whereas IWC or other watches, they think it's a sentimental attachment. I don't really care as much about the style because I'm buying into the brand, yeah. which I think is really important. You obviously have this incredible team surrounding you and Drew and I saw that at the IWC Roadshow. Mm-hmm. Uh, really amazing and one thing that drew and i really took from that was that you have a really good relationship with these people yeah like they're you're, they're your best pals because yeah. you work with well, them all the time family yeah exactly yeah. and that's that's how it should be i think talk to me about your management style when it comes to people because you've built this great team nobody can do this sort of stuff alone when you have a goal in mind you need people to help you yeah sure talk to me about that kind of management process yeah, well, as I said during my time at Rolls Royce, I was a specialist in nothing, and I still think that I'm not really a you know an expert in anything yeah. really. Um, and so for me, it was just surrounding myself with 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 people that are great at what they do, and and mm. you you see that whether it's in my marketing team or in the sales team or in the in the boutiques, they are absolute masters at what they do. Yeah, and I I'm just not a micromanager. You know, mm. I just don't think that's that's helpful. Um, so I think trust is key, you know, and they, they, I trust them. They, hopefully they trust me and communication's key. I think, um, having this kind of regular dialogue with everybody in the team is, Mm. is, is paramount and, and hunger index really. That's probably the one thing that I say to everyone, you know, I, I really appreciate people that are, you know, hungry to, to be on the same journey. We try to communicate every month. We get everyone into the boutique. So if you're in New Bond Street or Battersea, which are our internal boutiques, but we try to communicate as much as we can about um, where we're tracking, what we've done, what marketing activations we're doing, where we want to be at the end of the year, where we want to be in the next three to four years mm. and not be, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise for people to understand where the business is going. You know, I try to take, and it's not my journey, it's, you know, it's, mm. it's the direction of the business, but we try to be as transparent as that as transparent with that as much as possible so that everybody feels really engaged in that and they they all feel like they're part of something that's that's making something that's 
making a meaningful change. And I really believe that. I really believe the team are fully behind that, that drive to kind of really do more than what we've done before. Just a quick one, guys. I need to pause this conversation with Grant really, really quickly because day to day, I get a ton of questions regarding my jewelry and regarding my watches. And this is because we run the Chisholm Hunter YouTube channel. So people will stop me and ask where I get my watches from and where I get my jewelry from. And the answer is always Chisholm Hunter. They're a family-owned business for 165 years plus, which is pretty incredible. They have 28 stores throughout the UK and they deal in luxury watches and diamonds. So if you're looking for something for yourself, a watch for yourself, or you're looking for something for your other half, maybe an engagement ring, make sure you head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. IWC are a brand new sponsor to the podcast. And it's quite fitting because today we're talking to the brand director, the UK brand director of IWC. They are incredible watches. And I think my favorite IWC model so far is their new engineer model. Now, for those that are into watches, this watch was actually designed by Gerald Genta, who is a legend in the luxury watch industry. And the good thing about Chisholm Hunter alongside IWC is that Chisholm Hunter actually stock IWC. So if you want a new IWC watch, you can head to IWC, of course, but you can also head to Chisholm Hunter. What became very prevalent to me, especially when I saw your marketing in the container, Mm -hmm. Drew and I were speaking after it and we thought that your team was absolutely phenomenal and I think they've really contributed to this uh, marketing success that IWC are having mm -hmm. and obviously you can be the jack of all trades but you can't master one yeah how do you go about getting those professionals for each roles what's the, what's the kind of process like do you, do you employ from other uh, luxury watch houses or yeah. do you kind of employ with from without what's your personal stand on that I think it all depends on the role that that um, you're recruiting for. I think, and if it's a, if I look at the boutique team in Battersea, which we just opened a new boutique in Battersea about six months ago, I think only one of them have come from the watch industry, yeah. or actually they were actually a, at a IWC boutique in a different country, and I think half of them have had luxury experience working at a luxury fashion house. But I'd say at least half of the team haven't had luxury experience and never sold watches in their lives. And I think for me personally, it's the hunger index. It's the one thing that you know I really look for when we're doing recruitment. You can't teach. And, and you can't teach it. And if they are really passionate about it, I, I think if someone's come in and done a lot of research, um, can identify you know what, I'm, what watch I'm wearing and what they feel that they can contribute to this and uh, to the role that they're, they're applying for and how they feel they can make a difference and feel like an individual, but it's likewise work in a in a team dynamics. Mm. I think for me, that's kind of, you kind of have a bit of a gut in terms of like knowing whether that person's gonna be, you know, a real asset for the team. And then, I, so I, I don't think it's a prerequisite that you have, to, at least for me personally, to, mm. to have a luxury background. I think it's, uh, I think it's just, I, I think we look at everything on a case by case basis. And how do you instill, because your team, especially when you were around each other yeah. at the IWC Roadshow, you kind of, you're out for drinks at night, yeah, and you're, yeah. maybe I shouldn't be saying this. No, but no, but it's true. We're a family. I think we're a family. I think that that's, that, that's it. We're, we're, we're as, you, as you quite rightly said, I'm, I'm, I'm not the master of, of anything. I have to know a little bit about a lot. And um, I tried, I guess what I try to do is set the vision 
you know, obviously the you know there's clear guidelines from HQ, mm. and then it's kind of how we interpret it that locally, how we're going to try to develop a plan locally and and kind of make sure that we hit the the vision and the the targets and the aspirations that we have for the brands locally as well, uh, and it's just setting that vision and then making sure that we're on the right the right journey to get there, mm. and so regular communication with the team. Um, which is really critical. So, you know, we try to get everyone together at least once a month, the big whole wide team, and let people know kind of where we're tracking, not just in terms of sales, but what marketing events, what marketing activities we've done, you know, whether it was a success or not. And when I say a success, not necessarily in terms of like return on investment, mm. but you know, we, we, we set KPIs. We're quite analytical in terms of like how we look at our business, but we're quite creative in terms of setting new aspirations, things that haven't been done before, things that other Maisons in the watch industry haven't done. I think we're quite we're quite hung, hungry to do stuff like that. Um, but then we attest it and, and, and see if it kind of hits mm. some of the, KPI is the wrong word, but some of the, 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 the yardsticks that we've set for ourselves in terms of like, did, it, did it do that? Um, and I think communication's key then. Um, making sure everyone's aware of you know where where the brand's going what we're trying to do where we are today where we'll be tomorrow where where we want to be in the next three to four years mm. and just having that constant communication and making everyone feel like they're part of that mm. i think is super key um and 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 just trusting the team and being really transparent with them and making sure that you know if there is an issue we nip it in the bud and there is issues and we do have frustrations and sometimes things don't go to plan. And I think uh, at least from an, an external perspective, you'll never see that. I will say like we're, we're a, sw a swan, you know, on the outside, you're kind of looking very elegant and underneath you kind of, yeah. And it is a little bit like that as well. But um, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're in it together mm. and we celebrate success. I think that's really important, in fact. And what would be your advice? And in, in just a couple of words, because you kind of summed it up there. But yeah. if someone that's watching this that maybe is beginning to manage a team, yeah. maybe has three or four people in different areas that they're managing, yeah. what would be your advice to to um, to really motivate that team to set the goals and to really get them driven towards them? I think it's 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 trying to identify. At least for me, it's trying to identify what the strengths are or what the aspirations or the passion points are for for, for the individual and then seeing how that aligns with the big picture mm. and then trying to get the best out of them in terms of aligning their passion and their interest and their enthusiasm and their excite excitement align that with our vision and i think if they're if the hunger index is high i always talk about hunger index but if it's super high then they will naturally succeed in what they're doing and just trying to keep them on track i don't micromanage anyone you know it's that's that's the, for me i'm the complete opposite to that it's just making sure that we're steering the ship in the right direction but everybody's on that everybody understands what the end goal is or what the roadmap is but mm. but um but make sure they have their own individual aspirations and their own strengths and their own their own passions to get there mm. and, and you've got a, a, a family now you're a family man yes have you had any struggles in terms of you're you're, you're extremely but every time i see you you're doing something different you've always got a structure a schedule you're always doing something yeah are, are you finding it difficult in terms of yes balancing the family life <laughs> yes yeah i mean I, I always say to my team family first mm -hmm. and i'm i put my family first of course but i'm yeah. not always the best at 
doing what I say. <laughs> Uh, in the sense that um, our schedules are crazy. My wife works, she's got quite a big job as well. So she's, and she travels a lot as well. So um, we have to kind of schedule our calendars kind of months in advance. So there's not much, there's not, not much, much uh, no, there's, <laughs> there's not much flexibility or agility in our, in our, in our life. But um, yeah, we always try to put family first. And I'm, I, I'm a big believer um, in, you know, in making sure that we take time to, mm have quality time with the family because that's the most important thing all of this no we're not saving lives it's you know we're selling watches so family first yeah and in terms of when you were moving up within the industry it's a new industry for you yeah the watch industry did you ever get any kind of anxieties or imposter syndrome or feeling yeah, like sure. you don't really belong still there still now so, so do you, do you yeah, think you still, still get yeah syndrome? of course i think um i don't think that will ever leave me because mm. um i I answer this now. I, I, I know what I'm good at, and I know what I'm bad at, and I think the 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 key bit for me is, is recognizing that I can't do it all, mm. and that there's people in the team that are much better at doing certain things than I am, and and letting them get on and just do it, and and so I feel much more comfortable with that than I ever did in the in the past, but um. Yeah, I feel that sense of response. I think it's I think it's healthy as well to feel that sense of responsibility. You know, we're quite a big team. Um, we've got big aspirations, and um, we're we've got a real sniper approach in terms of how we get there. But uh, you know, if it doesn't work, if it does, I always said to my team, "You've got my permission to fail." And I remember interviewing for the job, and I said to Chris, "You know, I you need to give me permission to fail because there'll be certain things that we won't get right." And I would much prefer to take that approach than just do what's been done before. You know, I, my my predecessor had done done the role for years and years and years, and it was very clear to me really at the beginning that you know I couldn't do what he did because, and I, I'm still in contact with him today. Uh, I could do what he did because he he was the master at that. So I had to just bring my skill set, my experience, and do it the way that I felt was the most appropriate way forward. And do you think that you have, I know that when I was talking to, to Harry, the CEO of Shizm Hunter, yeah. um, he, he really doesn't, he's very uncomfortable with giving up control. Yeah. And uh, is that prevalent in you as well? Do you think that, that you really need to trust someone in terms of when you give them control of a certain area? I don't think so, to be honest. I, I, underst I understand that, um, but I don't think that's, that's me. I, I think I trust in the team that, you know, if you're specialist in an area, you know, whether it be marketing or whether it be sales or whether it's working in the boutique or whether it's strategy, you know, that we've recruited them to do a job and they've, they've mastered that. They know they're kind of really in tune with, as, I think, as long as we're all on that same, they've, they've got the big picture, they know what we're trying to achieve and the direction of which we're going. I'm, I'm immensely relaxed with not, feel like I need to micromanage or give up control or have to be involved in the nitty gritty of every single detail. Mm. I think it's much more important that I've got a, at the, I always say like the satellite view, you know, I say to my team, so my first line will say, you've got to have the helicopter view. You've got to kind of be able to come down operationally and look at the business, but also make sure that you're not getting stuck and drawn into continuous operational day-to-day mm. -day parts of the business because you will never be able to see the big picture. Yeah. And, and for me, it's the ability to kind of have that that short to medium to 
um, vision, what's going to happen to the business over the next few years? How do we transfer? How do we move the business from where we are today to where we want to be? What are the mechanisms for doing that? And and I think as long as I've got that big vision and I can try to communicate that in the in the best way forward, then it kind of it trickles down. I, I don't need to I don't mm. need to to be the master of everything. And how do you uh, something in my life that I've really de- I've really struggled with actually. Yeah is I'm a very detailed person. Yeah. I edit videos. Yeah. I'm extremely, uh, Drew will tell you all about this. I, I'm very detailed in terms of exactly what we need and there's a structure behind everything yeah. and there's a, you know, there's a proficient, an efficient way of doing everything. Yeah. It's just me. How do you keep that big picture? How, how, have you got any techniques or anything that you do in order to take a step back and look at the big picture and say, right, this is where we're going. I can't get caught into this detail because yeah. there's so much detail going on. Yeah. I think, If I look at where I need the business to grow and, and, and the journey, the roadmap to get there, I will, I kind of know, so for example, if I know I wanted to put certain boutiques in certain cities, you get a feel for what cities you want to be in or where you want to grow the business in certain key parts geographically. But then we're quite analytical as well. So we, I think we, we have this nice marriage of the creative side coming with the analytical side, not just talking about development of the network but also in terms of like our our total approach to 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 how we operationalize iwc we have this fusion between doing things that have never been done before that are totally creative that are bits breaking the mold in terms of of what the industry's done previously but then having this really analytical part which says okay if we do it how are we going to analyze it and it's not necessarily about return on investment but it it, it could be about uh uh, reach it could be it could be a it, you know there's multiple different measurements that we use to kind of take a step back and go did that work should we do it again how can we learn from that and I think that's a continuous journey for us and so by doing that it feels like we're making progress yeah absolutely you've obviously within a business especially as a director you're going to face difficulties and you're going to as as you said yourself you need to allow me to fail yeah I, I can see you and correct me if i'm wrong but i can see you being someone that's maybe quite hard on themselves when something goes wrong Um, how would you deal with that i know that you're a keen runner yeah is that your kind of release yeah i think it i think so yeah i think that and trying to keep some level of fitness as yeah. well. um I, I can't run in the mornings you know I, everyone says how can you run at night i i just I can't because I'm I lose all my energy in the morning. I I need to come into work full of energy and full of you know try to give it my all. Yeah. And then the only time by the time we've got the kids to bed and you know everything's cleaned up and you're ready, that's that's the only kind of downtime that I have. So for me, it's a good good. You know, I don't go for big long runs. It's just five k. But for me, it's a good way. For, to clear. for me, that's a lot though. <laughs> well, for me, it's just a way of clearing my head. You know, you can just you know get some fresh air. You feel like you're getting some. Mm. It's a good. I think it's quite good for the mental health. Yeah, it's when we we had a gentleman called Ali Houston on the podcast. Yeah, and he is a keto and paleo expert. Oh, wow. Um, and he was explaining the 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 that basically you have two methods of burning energy. Yeah. You have your straight to, to your fat reserves, yeah. which is when you're in ketosis. Yeah. So you're burning with ketones. Yeah. And you also have like carbs, breaking down sugars and carbs. Sure. And so they're two separate energy sources. And what he described is, if you switch to a keto diet, it can change the, the basically the chemicals in your brain can be, become a bit different, mm-hmm. and it can make you feel a lot clearer. Yeah. Um, a bit like going a run, you feel great after it. Yeah. Um, did you stick to a certain diet, or what's the? 
Not, not really, not really. And I hate going for the run, to be yeah. honest. I mean, it sounds <laughs> quite sadistic, but I, as you quite rightly said, you feel great afterwards. Yeah. But I'm, it, I almost, I don't go every night, probably four or five times a week, but it's a real forcing myself to do it. And I just say to myself, you've got no choice. You've got to do it. And I think as long as I get into that into that zone, you just you just do it. And and then once you're out, if your mind drifts on, I think that's quite a nice place yeah. to be. And then come back, you feel refreshed. And yeah, are you goal orientated? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Definitely. really, really target orientated. Yeah, yeah. Even with your runs? Yeah. No, no. But with with work particularly, yeah. Yeah. actually less so with family life and fitness and social etc. Sort of segregated. Yeah, but when it comes to work, like massively target orientated. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm really, really, really analytic, like beyond analytical when it comes to the way we approach stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's interesting. I, I was thinking about what, what we were doing with the, the YouTube channel that we're working yeah. on. And, and it does go down to the granular detail of yeah. retention rates and exactly the, the, the 30 second period where somebody dropped off and why did they drop off? Yeah. And then we go into the, it's, it's just interesting. How, you've but you got, know, it's good to, it's good to know that. It's, I think the, the key there is agility. Mm. And being able to adapt or or being able to go, okay, that's without overthinking it. Mm. You know, I think is data's great, but you know, sometimes you know, we have so much data, what do we really do with it? Mm. I think it's the important to kind of understand how it can be and it's difficult how to how it can be insightful and helpful versus okay, it's just another data point, it's another tick box exercise. I already knew it. Yeah. You already yeah. know it, yeah, exactly. Just reinforce what you already knew. IWC obviously have an affinity to racing yeah and you've got lewis hamilton as your ambassador yeah quite rightly so and, and george russell yeah and george russell <laughs> and uh, how, how does it does it kind of help that you have a passion for racing yourself yeah i think i've on a personal level i think because yeah. you know i'm fascinated with this you know motor motorsport i think is is i just i just think it's the pinnacle of of or formula one is the pinnacle of motorsport mm. and you know they're 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 constantly thinking about how they can generate an extra one tenth of a second Crazy. you know over over 75 80 laps or whatever it may be I, I just think it's fascinating and that level of engineering and that working together as a team and striving mm -hmm. for you know becoming the best that they can possibly be and and I, I see a lot of crossover between you know what Toto does with his team and Chris and Toto and Chris there's a real friendship there's a real kinship there I think Chris would be the first to say it. Toto's his mentor as well so you feel that connection and we feel that when we do activations or if we're at the Formula One in Silverstone you really feel not like you're you know a commercial sponsor with IWC mm -hmm. it feels way more connected when you're at the Formula One you know you can get into the pitch you can talk to the engineers and they're all wearing the watches but they're just as geeky about watches as we're geeky about understanding you know how they're managing their tyres or you know their race strategy etc so it, it definitely feels like a really strong authentic relationship and in terms of that ambassador so you've got these two bro brilliant racing drivers yeah do, do people come into the boutique i've always wondered this do, do they specifically say oh what does lewis hamilton have on is that like a question yeah i think so yeah, yeah for sure actually george unannounced has come into the into new bond street a couple of times you know and just, just walked in just walked in and you know i think i remember a couple of times he just wanted to do a strap change or he wanted to try and do watch because he knew it had come out and mm. i think he was speaking to hq about getting it in the future mm. and it wanted to see what it looked like on the wrist and he's, I mean, just really down to earth, easygoing, really passionate about watches and and just one of the nicest guys I've ever met. 
Listen, guys, I need to say something really quickly. I need to say a huge thank you for all your support on this podcast. If you could quickly do me a favor and hit that like button, follow button, subscribe, whatever it is, wherever you're watching this, I would really appreciate it. We're trying to get to our goal of 10,000 subscribers or followers or likes, all that social media stuff. And if you could do that and, and help us get there, I would honestly really appreciate it. This podcast means a hell of a lot to me. So thank you. So I've got a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little more general about the watch industry. Sure. Why do you think that watches have such a following behind them? It feels like, I don't, I don't know if you feel the same way. It feels over the last five or so years, much more than it did before. Or maybe that's because I'm now in the industry, you know, and I saw it from a from outsider. someone that, an outsider that just loved the the hobby that it's definitely felt the the brand awareness or the 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 passion behind watches has definitely increased that's how i feel anyway mm. um i think people i think there's an element of people feeling like it's a commodity mm. which i think is personally is good and bad uh, you know if you're investing your hard-earned money into a product you know you don't want it to to lose half its value the moment you've put it on your wrist mm. but at the same time you know i feel that Personally, I feel that pendulum swung a bit too far. You know, I, I, um, I, I, what I, what I, I think, you know, celebrities, Instagram, social media, I think that's all had a key part to play in terms of the, the watch industry getting this massive influx of, of attention, which I think on, on the whole is, is really healthy for the business. And at least what I'm very conscious of is not coming, you know, we've got our, the people that have been very loyal to the brand for years and years and years and not kind of putting them off us, but trying to make the brands more open and, you know, reaching out to new people that perhaps haven't had an experience of the brand, I think is quite key. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, because it has, I, I think that I've seen, specifically in IWC actually, but not not just IWC, I, I've seen a growth in the watch community, you yeah. could call it. Um, I remember before when I was into watches, it was very much forum-based. I'm not sure yeah. if you remember those days. Yeah, yeah, sure. Back in my day, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was very much forum-based. Then it took to YouTube. Yeah. Then it went to Instagram. Yeah. And there's these huge accounts with huge followings like yeah. Nico Lennard, yeah. like our friend Adrian, who's coming on the podcast sure. next week and or this week. Um, do you think they've made it cool in a way? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you know, the visual elements of YouTube and, and Instagram, I think has played a key part. And I think Chris is quite visual as well. So, you know, I think he he's always keen to kind of put the latest watch on his wrist and, and you know, for people to see it. And, and this ability to kind of dress up, dress down, have fun with it. I mean, the watch that I'm wearing today, the, the, map, the map watch, the Mercedes-AMG Patronus Pilot's Chronograph, which is bit of a long-winded word well, I shouldn't say that um, um, but having having a play you know having playful, playful colours yeah. you know with the the coloured rubber strap that you know you can take off in a second you know you've got the easy exchange you can literally take it off in a second and put a a nice black fabric strap I think we can I think the industry's become a bit more playful and mm-hmm. a bit less serious which I think is really important to kind of bring on new people that haven't that's had an experience with a luxury watch before yeah yeah and where do you see the luxury industry going because i was quite shocked after covid hit 
Buchanan Street, which is the main for any listeners out there, the kind of main street in Glasgow, yeah. or it is the main street in Glasgow. There were so many empty, empty spaces, yeah. derelict buildings because the businesses couldn't cope. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you had, I won't name the luxury watch brands, but you, you had one, two, three, four, yeah. all opening up within a year, yeah. all luxury watch brands. Yeah. It seems like the industry kind of boomed over COVID. Uh, do you think that COVID had an impact? Like people, more, more people got into the industry over COVID? I think that, you know, at least my perception is that a bit more time on their hands, mm. you know, and they, I think that's where YouTube and Instagram really flourished because mm. they, you know, they had much more of a captive audience and people were spending more time looking at their phones and, and consuming this. And I think that's had a ripple effect. And, uh, and I think the interest and the awareness has been peaked. And then when it all unlocked, people wanted to, go and touch and feel and yeah. see the physical product that they'd seen on on the YouTube video or on Instagram. And I think that, that correlation then is just a natural consequence of people, you know, then being inquisitive and wanting to go into the boutiques and wanting to put the watch on their wrist and have a chat with someone, you know, they're what had become a bit of a passion point perhaps over the pandemic period, wanting to go and see people and have a conversation with the salesperson about it or the whoever it may be you know i think that that's just had a impact an impact yeah yeah what watches does grant wilson have in his collection (laughs) an unhealthy amount (laughs) there's there's you know there's every yeah there's quite an unhealthy obsession with watches which goes (laughs) goes before my time at iwc so there's there's some, dare I say it, there's some some other products that I can't wear anymore that sit in a safe, but, um, you know, sometimes I get them out and look at them and... Uh, <laughs> cradle them. Yeah, cradle them and then put them back <laughs> in the safe. No, but there's there's a few other watches that, you know, from from prior to my life at IWC. But in terms of IWC, I have also an unhealthy amount of <laughs> IWCs as well that over the years that I've, um, that, that I've been lucky enough to get hands-on and yeah. acquire. Um there's not really a theme. I know some other watch, you know, people that collect watches, they go for chronographs mm. or they go for, you know, very classical looks or they go for, you know, very um, big, big case. I've, there's, there's no theme to my it's watch collection at all. No, I've got, I've got a, a beautiful 1940s IWC Calatrava with a salmon dial that's 34 millimeters. And then I've also got a big pilot ceramic 46 millimeters so there's you know i'm completely you know i i I guess if anything it's to kind of suit what i'm i I guess i try to wear watches that i think work Mm. with i want to say outfit that sounds really pretentious but you know with with whatever clothes that i'm wearing i think there's there's you know for me there's a weekend watch where i can just be in polo shirt and jeans or whatever and i'll have a watch that i think will nicely match that Mm. and then i can be you know, suited up and have perhaps a watch that I feel more comfortable wearing yeah. with a suit. You are quite stylized. I've seen that on your Instagram. No, quite, I don't think so. <laughs> I like you like you like like your you've got nice shoes, nice <laughs> like he's very like yeah. stylized. I yeah, watches, shoes, cars. cars. You know, there's a there's a trend there. Yeah, I do like shoes. Yeah, the next will yeah. be cameras, and then that'll yeah, be, that that'll be the, all three. <laughs> I don't think I can afford that. After what you guys told me about lenses and camera prices, unbelievable. <laughs> So you, you were talking about Pilot's Watch. So you've got a Pilot's Watch in your collection? I've got a couple of Pilot's Watches in the collection, yeah. And you you were... Uh, talk me through the relationship between Top Gun and IWC. Yeah, it's... 
it dates back quite a few years now. I want to say 2007. Might have to might have to fact check myself there. Um, but it's it's an authentic relationship that IWC have. Obviously, there's the commercial movie side, but but that's all based on the Real. tactical fighters that fight for the that that train for the U.S. Navy. Um, so the SFTI fighters, and and we developed watches that are much more about the pilot and how the pilot will use the watch than really a commercial element to it. So, you know, typically they're, they're pressure tested. So the, you know, the, the pilots will be going high altitudes and then putting X amount of G-force and then going down. So doing crazy maneuvers in the air and uh, the Sapphire Crystal won't pop out. Whereas, you know, with other watches, they're not tested to that extreme. So mm. we typically the Top Gun watches, they're all ceramic watches. And that's just a functionality reason, you know, that the pilot will be, you know, Hang throwing on. around in the cockpit and it'll be knocking the watch against everything. So having a ceramic watch, you know, it's that scratch resistancy. So a standard steel watch would just get battered in a in a cockpit. Um, the dial's quite legible as well. So, you know, we've got the, the um, really highly visible um layout of the of the of the of the dial so it's at a quick glimpse you can see exactly the time and i think these are the kind of characteristics that that have gone um, a lot of that is iwc's dna which makes it really relevant for a, um, a top gun pilot to wear the watch today and then you know chris developed watches to really match the environment that the fighter pilots were in so things like the mojave desert was 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 to blend in with the the khaki outfits that the pilots were wearing when they're training in in nevada in the in the in the mojave desert so you know it's really color matched the colored ceramic and the the strap and the the dial with that panatone um match really to match the the uniforms of the pilots there and then the Lake Tahoe is is exactly the opposite. You know, it's the it's a it's a, a really contrasting white ceramic watch with the white strap. And again, you know, that's really having that that. Yes, there's a street apparel um, uh, kind of there's a street apparel kind of awareness and uh, desirability to those watches, but they were originally in their the concept design was for the pilots. Hmm. I think when it comes to the watch industry in a general sense, uniqueness is quite a hard thing to come by because every watch tells the time. Yeah. It's a bit like cars. Every car drives yeah. from A to B. And they've all got unique little changes and bits about them that, that, yeah. that kind of separate from, from the rest of the industry. You were telling me earlier about serotonin. Yeah. Can you explain that to me again? Because that, that, that was wild. Serotonin, what is serotonin? How did IWC develop that? Yeah, well, I think I'd... I can't remember if we said it earlier, but IWC's really got a rich history when it comes to um, case materials. You know, it's uh, for me, it's one of the standout features of what makes the brand quite unique or what makes an IWC an IWC. And so if if you take coloured ceramics, you know, we were the, one of the first brands, if not the first brand to do a, a coloured ceramic um, watch back in the, in the 80s. It was on a Da Vinci... We did a, a beautiful kind of green and a white, and you know they're actually in 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 our boutique at the moment, so you can come and see them. Um, and really, one of the first brands to do coloured ceramics, and obviously ceramic watches really took off. And we've been doing numerous ceramic watches for years now. And uh, there's a big department at, at HQ at Schaffhausen that that's a, a team of 
of material scientists mm-hmm. and they're constantly working on the next project. So there's a real relationship with, with um, ceramic watches and we've been doing ceramic watches for a number of years and I guess the next evolution because we invest so much energy into case materials and we have a team at Schaffhausen that are constantly thinking about the next the next um, the, the next evolution of where the next case material will come from and what materials we'll use and so serotonium I think was actually you know developed about seven years ago from Lawrence and his team and it's this fusion between um, ceramic and titanium now Ceramic is a really scratch-resistant property, but God forbid if you ever drop your ceramic watch on a marble floor, which sounds very, you know, unlikely, but you know, ceramic is prone to to cracking. Mm-hmm. And um, then if you look at titanium, titanium is is really lightweight but really robust. And and so if you fuse the two between ceramic and titanium, you have all of the scratch-resistant properties of ceramic and all of the robust lightness of titanium so you have the best of both worlds you have a, a pretty much a bomb proof watch mm-hmm. and so you're not going to scratch it you're not going to crack it um on 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 the scale of of toughness it's you know it's really up there as one of the most um strongest toughest materials that can be engineered yeah. and it's a hell of a process you know it's it's extreme temperatures it's applying the ceramic to the titanium it's not like a a fusion of the two metals coming together it's the the ceramic element is the way Lawrence described it to me is putting some you know bread into a toaster you know and, and as it's toasting you've got the 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 outer layer mm. is 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 you know if you're le- leaving a, a piece of bread in the toaster for too long you get the you know obviously the burnts on the out and you can scrape it off yeah it, it's it's creating this kind of caking of the titanium that gives it that fusion that's the fusion part that's, that's really interesting no that was really interesting <laughs> i just figured did i explain that well at all <laughs> <laughs> no no i got it i got it i think the toasted kind of yeah. analogy it works <laughs> it's good when lawrence does it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um and then you've got so you've got this incredible innovation that's that's uh am i right in saying that iwc own the patent yes that? yeah yeah so yeah, we only do. get that at IWC. Yeah, you can only get a serotonin watch from from IWC, and it's yeah. even made at at, at Schaffhausen. It's you know very expensive form of. You have different grades of titanium, so it's 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 crazy expensive um, uh, uh, titanium in its in its raw concept, mm. and then the, the 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 whole baking process and the fusing process all happens at Schaffhausen as well. So it's a uh, it's a USP. It's patented. Yeah. It's um, yeah, you can only get a serotonin watch from from IWC, I but I, I, it's what's super interesting is what what's coming out, which I can't say. But there's you know there's stuff in the pipeline. Yeah, but stuff that you know they're taking stuff that happens in the space industry or stuff you know satellite discs mm-hmm. etc. In terms of how they manage extreme heats from like you were saying about the cameras being able to, the the batteries and the cameras being able to take you know really extreme heats at both ends of the spectrum mm. you know there's there's materials out there that are being used on satellites that which can be manufactured in big huge processes but then taking that and putting it into a case material mm. is is next level as well so there's some exciting stuff coming what is it what do you think it is about watch collectors and things that they probably will never need or use because <laughs> yeah I, I love watches that have a huge water resistance like yeah. the one i have on yeah. today and I love watches that have these new innovative materials. Yeah. 
I'm not in the army. No. I'm not going to die. What do you think it is? That, like, Just like to know it can do it. Yeah. You know, you know, my watch that I'm wearing now is 100 meters, but you know, I, I don't think I've been more than two meters <laughs> underneath the, <laughs> whatever the depth is of a swimming yeah. pool. But I think it's just knowing that it can do it. It can do it. Yeah. I think there's these kind of, you like these kind of stories that go, um, mm. do you remember that titanium watch? Uh, the Titanic watch that came out a few years ago. Yeah. They, 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 yeah. I'm going off brand now, but they went down and got a piece of the hull from the Titanic. Yeah. And then they brought it up and put elements of it onto the watch. I thought that was pretty cool. That's awesome. I, yeah. it's, it's almost like getting... Got a piece of history on your wrist. Exactly. Or yeah. there, were, there, was, there were certain brands, I won't mention the brands, but they got pieces of planes mm -hmm. and they put them into the watches. Yeah. And, and they, they, there's other brands that have got the, some the stuff from the moon. Yeah. They put that in their watches. Yeah. And, and people love the fact that it has that raw material of a passion or a hobby or whatever it is yep. in their band is it's really fascinating. I think. Yeah, watch this space. There's some stuff coming on the horizon as well. Will you tell me with, after? With, <laughs> I'll tell you what. No, yeah, I'll tell you after. Um, and what, what, in terms of like your day, how do you remain productive throughout? Because you, to me, you strike me as a very, you're a very detailed guy and you've got, as you said, analytical and you very stick to a structure. Do you have any tips for productivity in people? I think first surround yourself with a great team, you know, because there's no, it's not me, it's the team. And first and foremost, that's really is the case. It's, it's, I'm, I'm very blessed to have a really great team that are really dedicated. And mm. I, I guess for my part, it's, it's giving them the vision of where we want to. I think it's important to have a vision. And it sounds quite cliche, but if you haven't got that, that end goal of what you're trying to achieve, it's quite difficult to know where you're going. Where you're going. Hmm. So, and then having a, having a bit of a roadmap in terms of what you want to, you know, where you, you know, all things being perfect, how are you going to get there? But then really know that you're going to have to have agility in that roadmap. You're going to have to be flexible, you know, that, that from getting from where you are today to where you want to be in a few years time it's not going to it's not going to work the way you expect it so you, you have to have there's a level of agility there that i think is really important and being able to to be able to manage change and embrace change yeah typically i'd never thought i was a person that really embraces change though you know, i quite like my my uh my processes my structure but one of the things that being in this job has taught me is is you need to embrace it you know get on board with it there's new technologies there's there's um new ways of communicating um there's new ways of doing business you know and the pandemic definitely taught us a lot on that front and i, and I think if you really embrace that then you can be one of the first i always think it's better to be first than it is to, to you know not be first not yeah or you know you can do it the slow and steady mm. and you know i just think i just feel there's a lot of there's a lot of collateral in 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 being one of the first, and I think that also that that kind of comes from from Chris, our CEO's kind mm. of, you know, he was when we did. Do you remember Clubhouse? It's kind of gone now, but you know, there yeah. was Clubhouse was big. I don't know any other brand that jumped on Clubhouse as quickly as Chris. You know, I remember him phoning a few of us up and said, "Let's just test it, see where it goes." And I, f I found it at the beginning quite bizarre because we weren't even talking. To, we weren't watches was never mentioned it was you know an hour with chris talking to one of the friends of the brands about what their passions were what you know what they've done what they've achieved and you know and occasionally chris would kind of bring it in you know what we've done iwc etc but the majority of the conversation wasn't even talking about watches but it was you know he was really quick to embrace an, a new form of communication 
And there's lots of stuff like that that Chris has done. And I think that, that kind of trickles down to all of us. Yeah, yeah. And do you think there's anything that, from Chris that you've learned over working? You, how long have you worked with Chris? So three and a half years. Three and a half years. And yeah. Learn anything from Well, him? I think Chris is, he's very English. Although he's German, he's, yeah. he's, he's, um, English he's German. Very, very, he has a real affinity and love for, for the UK. You know, his, his wife's British, his kids are kind of British as well. Mm. You know, lived in the UK for a long time, went to UK and university. So you can't, you can't fall, you can't trick him. You know, he knows the, the English way of life or the British way of life really well. Um, and I think that that's a great, from a UK perspective, that's a real asset to have um, because he understands the mentality, the culture, where we want to go. He understands the base point of where the brand is today, but also where we need the brand to be. So, And he's super creative, um, uh, obviously studied architecture at university. So you see that now translate into into some of some of his vision into the either the manufacturing facility in in Schaffhausen or you know some of the boutiques and his use of elevation etc and he's much more tuned into that than I think anybody else but you know he he um he's he's very easygoing you know he's not uh I've been with some, you know previous lives mm-hmm. worked for some other bosses and um he's much more easygoing than anybody else I've worked with yeah yeah and it was funny, you were talking about innovation and change and it's yeah. always better to be ahead of the kind of curve, so to speak. It's better yeah. to be the first one yeah. there. And I was thinking about uh, a kind of real legend in the industry, Jean-Claude Biver. Sure. And how he took over, you know, there was, what was it, their tag heuer? Amiga. Amiga. Yeah, Hublot. Hublot, yeah. Um, and, and he really revolutionized those things. Yeah. But what he always had with him was yeah. a team. Yeah. And he would always go into a brand and he would need the, either the same team or he would he would jiggery pokery around and make sure that some of the members from his team were there because you yeah. almost need somebody around you. So it was interesting. I was just, I was thinking of that when you were mentioning your team. What advice for someone going into your role or pursuing a career within the watch industry and wanting to work their way up the ranks, so to speak? Yeah. What advice would you give them? Do your research. Be passionate. Um, do more than what's expected of you, even if it's the interview process. I think that's served me personally quite well. Um, show a, a real interest in what you're doing and what you want to do and how how you would approach it. Um, and I think passion can't, it's the yeah. one big thing that we always say we can't teach. Yeah. Um, and uh, and don't, don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Good. Well, listen, I really appreciate the conversation, Grant, and it's been um, incredible to get to know you in a little bit more detail. Get get the ins and outs of the watch industry. (laughs) Thank you very much. No, thank you very much for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of the Into the Mind podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider hitting that subscribe button, follow button, five-star button, whatever it is, wherever you are, I would really appreciate it. This podcast means a hell of a lot. And our goal, as I said before, is to hit 10,000 subscribers or followers, whatever it is. Thank you guys so much. And I'll see you soon.